Hi, welcome to Reboot Ed, the podcast where we talk about big issues in education and hardly ever come up with any answers. I'm your host, Mike Ballmert. Um, our co-host, um, the wayward Andrew Schwab, is again MIA. Uh, we'll work on rounding him up and getting him back at some point. Um, but with us today is Catlin Tucker, um, author, Google certified teacher, um, ex-gaucho, go gauchos, uh, ex-Bruin. Go I am, I am. Yes. Actually, you and I crossed. Um, oh, we did. You went to UCLA and then you went to UCSB for your grad work. I went to UCSB and went to UCLA for my grad work. So You're great because you were going right into the LA Unified School District if you were uh, doing your grad work there, most likely. Um, <laughs> never touched ground in the LA no. USB. <laughs> I, I, was, I, I was able to dodge that one quite effectively, I think. But anyway, welcome. Thank you very Thank much you. for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, um, you know, looking at all the things you've done, you're a Q um, lead learner. You're a Google certified teacher. You're English teacher of the year, from what I understand, um, or teacher yeah. of the year. Teacher of the year, 2010, yeah. And, and so talk a little bit about your background. You, you teach English. I do. I do. I definitely started out as a very traditional English teacher. Um, my repertoire was composed of paper pen books, really. And for the first seven years of my teaching career, that was pretty much all I used. I taught very much the way I was taught as a student. And I was taught to teach with those tools when I was in credential school. I think I think I was one technology class at UCSB as part of the credential school. And it was like a word processing here's how you use PowerPoint class. So there was nothing really dynamic about, you know, how to use technology to engage students in my teaching education. Uh, and it, it was really interesting because I, I felt for the first seven years, like maybe I had wandered into the wrong profession. <laughs> like <laughs> I am super type A and when I was in my credential school, I had all of these, you know, fantasies about what this class was gonna be like. My, you know, kids were gonna be engaged, we're gonna sit in circles and talk about literature. Um, and that just didn't happen. And so I got to a point where I was really feeling like maybe I needed to go find a different career path because this was not what I had been dreaming about. And that for me is when things started to change. So you're not unique in, you know, teachers that are really committed to getting kids passionate about their subject matter and the things that, that we as teachers kind of really enjoy. Right. Um, and, and you're not unique in that your, your preparation for teaching really didn't take a look at, you know, technology as a tool or a, a mode for getting kids better engaged. but. Here's here's the thing that that I've puzzled with a lot, and and we've talked about this in my district quite a bit. And you talk in your book, Blended Learning, about kids being digital natives. Most of us as adults being digital immigrants. Um, not your term or my term. That comes from somebody else, Larry. Somebody, I forget his name. Anyway, yeah. So somebody back in the day came up with this concept, and I think it's really true. Kids are growing up with this tech. We've kind of sort of had it thrust upon us. But right. there's a difference between some teachers um, who have sort of adopted this and explored it and embraced it, and some who don't. And I'm really curious about, first of all, from a personal standpoint, 
how is it that you came to do all this stuff? I mean, you've really taken off. You're, you're a Google certified teacher. You're obviously using this stuff. You write about scads of different applications and programs and learning management systems and all these different pieces of software that you've explored. So what's the difference between you and the teacher at your school who's down the hall who still has pen and paper and books and kids in circles trying to get engaged about literature? You know, I, I think there are myriad reasons why there are some teachers who are so hesitant or downright resistant to using technology in their teaching practice. But I think that the first, like the big answer is just fear. Um, as teachers, we're very much set up to be the ones with all the answers in a classroom. I mean, I remember feeling that way when I was sitting in classes. Um, I remember feeling that way when I was learning to be an English teacher. I had an intense fear in those first couple of years that if they ask me a question, I have to have the answer. Because mm. if I don't have the answer, where is the answer going to come from, right? I mean, unless we can look it up in a dictionary. It's not like we had computers in our classroom or, you know, mobile devices that we could just whip out of our pockets and do a quick Google search. And so I think for a lot of us, and I include myself in that, because when I started kind of dipping my toe into blended learning and technology integration, I didn't know how to put a ringtone on my phone. You know, my husband was <laughs> doing that for me. It's not like I have always loved technology and been super tech savvy. That I mean, that's an absolute... That would be a lie to try to say that. Um, but I think I got to a place where I realized that if I didn't make a change, if I didn't try something new, I really did need to leave this profession because it wasn't what I was dreaming about, what I was hoping for. I wasn't filled by it. I felt like I was failing my students. I wasn't able to engage them in the ways that I knew they really needed to be engaged if they were going to be learning. Um, and so for me, it was about getting over that fear and just going for it. And I am so glad I did because the very first risk I took in terms of online learning was with online discussions. And I was so afraid. What are these kids going to say online? What are they going to do? Like, And a lot of teachers are control. They like control, right? I love like feeling like I'm in control of everything that's going around me. And I found in the last seven years or so how counterproductive that actually is if I, right. I'm trying to control everything. And so, you know, I let them loose online and they had these first online conversations and I was absolutely floored by a few things that happened in quick succession. And the first one was just that first night when I launched that first online discussion question. And I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder if I'm going to get a parent phone call. I wonder if kids are going to be rude to each other. Like, will they be kind and supportive? And the first three kids to, to contribute to that online discussion are kids who never talk in my class. Never. And I was like, oh my gosh, here are kids that have been trying to engage with all all of these strategies in real time and have failed every time I've tried. And yet I gave them a different space, a space where they were comfortable, where they had time to process what I was asking, articulate a response, and then they were eager to jump in and share their ideas. And for me, that was so incredibly rewarding. And it was just like, that's all it took. And then what I didn't expect, and I talk about this in the book too, is just how fluidly those skills transferred back into the classroom as students built confidence and asserted their personalities online and began to form these friendships. 
it, it translated into a stronger class community. And so it wasn't like the conversations only took place online. They were really feeding what was happening in the classroom. And so from then on out, instead of fearing what could happen, I tried to take a really proactive approach. Okay, so what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of what kids will say online. So how can I make sure that when they go online, they know exactly what's expected, that they can be successful in this space? And so for me, and a lot of the, the resources in the book are really about how do you proactively create a safe space online? How do you build, how do you build community? How do you teach them how to communicate in this online space? Because I think we assume they're online all the time, they're on their phones, they know how to do this. No, they don't. <laughs> they do not know how to have academic conversations online. And that, and that kind of leads to the second part of this. The kids, in terms of that digital native sort of um, analogy, they know how to do these things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're proficient in using this in an academic sense. And I think one of the real strengths of your book is, I mean, you've got um, forms that people could just literally kind of steal right out of the book that sort of instruct yeah. <laughs> kids, these are the appropriate ways to behave. These are the kinds of things that you should do, the kinds of things that you should not do. These are the expectations and the norms. Um, all of which, by the way, and we'll talk hopefully more about this later, is really important, right, in terms of setting this whole thing up. Oh, yeah. And I... You know, for not only just alleviating our fear, but you know, if my if my what I think of as my goal as an English teacher is really to make students better communicators in person on paper, well, now we have to consider what does that look like online because they're engaging in this digital space all the time, and if we're not teaching them how to do that in a really meaningful and kind and substantive way then I feel like I'm not doing my whole job. And so teachers have this opportunity to potentially teach skills that will bleed over into students' social interactions and make those a little bit more respectful right. and supportive and kind and all of those things that we're, we're hoping that they will be. Um, but you're right, kids are those digital natives. They, 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 have, they know how stuff works, but they don't necessarily know how to like engage in different spaces. And behave, yeah. Behave. Uh, well, uh, but I mean, isn't the same thing true elementary kids on the playground? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a behavior issue. It's not really part of the technology. It's just in this environment, these are the norms, just like on the playground. These are the norms. You can't go up and kick Johnny because he made you mad. You have to have a way to resolve that. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's a lot of value in doing that, like on the playground with kids you see every single day. Why not mm -hmm. teach them how to engage online with people they see every day? There's a sense of responsibility in those interactions too, because you can't just say whatever you want without knowing that there's going to be some kind of consequence if you are, you know, right. digitally kicking someone in an online discussion or something. You know, yeah. they they have to have that that sense of okay, there's a consequence. There's a responsibility to these people in my class. So, um, you know, just back to this native versus immigrant thing, um, your colleagues down the hall or people that have picked up your book and, you know, they're, they're not comfortable with the technology so much. What's been your experience or what's the feedback about how that goes and what does it take for that to be sort of transformative in terms of the next level of, not the Google certified teachers. Right. But, you know, that kind of next tier of teachers that are seeing the need, 
but struggling with the technology part of that? Well, and I think, well, I think that the the answer is that the teachers need to just start small. You know, you can have this, you can have lots of ideas about what you, where you want to go with your teaching practice or, you know, oh, I love blended learning. This is a great idea. Like, I would love to be over here doing these great things. But you were starting maybe over here. And so, you know, what I always tell teachers when I'm doing trainings or I'm speaking is, you know, pick up one tool, try one strategy, and then make mistakes because you're going to make mistakes. And don't be afraid of those mistakes, but, you know, use them as learning opportunities. I mean, I, I, I'm the first person to say that my book is just a culmination of every mistake I made and then what I learned <laughs> as a result of it, you know, like, yeah. so, and helping teachers to hopefully avoid some of those mistakes. But for the teachers who, who aren't using anything but have that interest, it's like, it can be so overwhelming. There's so much technology out there it's like where do I start how do I you know get going so one tool one strategy be patient with yourself know you're gonna make a ton of mistakes but once they have that like initial success they see student excitement then it's like they'll, they'll have an opportunity to pick up another technique or another tool and the tools don't even really matter it's just it's what are you doing with them to engage kids in a meaningful way and that can be a really slow but very rewarding process i mean it didn't happen for me overnight it took years i think that's a really important point too because a lot of folks ask me you know well what what should i use what what tool is the right one and i tell them all the time hey pick it if mm -hmm. if it if it floats go with it if not try something Drop else it. Talk mm -hmm. to some folks, see what they use. Just try something because it's the practice that's more important than the particular piece of software. I um, agree. For some, though, I think that's a hard thing to do. Um, and, yeah. you know, again, you kind of point out um, a number of different packages and, and pretty much say, this is the one I chose, but here's all these others that can work just as fine. Well, and it's interesting is so I, you know, I, I just, I talked about different learning management systems and right. I was using a learning management system and now I'm using a different one and I don't even use very many components of it. I just use the discussion functionality of it. And instead of using like the, the quizzing and all the other learning management features I've chosen because I have gotten so comfortable with technology is instead to just use the tool that's best for whatever job we're doing. And that means we use a ton of different apps, we use a ton of different web tools, and we use the discussion functionality of an LMS. And so for me, it's been about picking and choosing the best tools for the job. And I love the idea of giving kids exposure to lots of tools because then they really start to appreciate that certain tools do certain things really well and other tools don't do these things really well. And I, I think that's where you start to build technology fluency is when you when you have that kind of understanding of which tool is the best tool for the job and why am I using it and when do I use it. And that process for teachers, I think, is that's one of the critical processes that, you know, like you said before, that you only had one word processing class in your yeah. credentialing program. Um, which, by the way, is way more than I had, but there's like a generational gap here, <laughs> um, even at UCSB. But, um, you know, that process and that sort of, um, that sort of approach is really, really important. And I don't think that we address that nearly as well as we should in, in teacher training programs. No, I'm, I mean, I think they're slowly, you know, they're, they're getting it. And it's, there are some that are doing a better job of kind of, evolving but I don't I you know I had a woman come up to me two 
two years ago at ISTE, and she said, you know, I paid to bring myself here. I'm in a credential program, and mm -hmm. all I've had is a class about the 100 things you can do with PowerPoint. And I was just kind of <laughs> amazed that at this moment in time that that's really the level of technology support right. and instruction she was getting. And I think beyond fear, the, your typical teacher who is not super excited about tech can really hide behind well we don't i don't have a lot of access or i don't i'm not not being supported with professional development but to be honest we in my district had our second paid for professional development day this year in six years so it's not like i'm being exposed to incredible professional development via my school district i have had to aggressively pursue my own learning go to conferences, present, check out other people's sessions, go on Simple K-12 and watch webinars, you know, follow people's blogs, connect on Twitter. It's been very much driven by my own desire to refine my own practice. And so I think that also is an issue for lots of teachers. Well, and I think it certainly relates to why some people adopt these technologies and these strategies sooner than others. But let's be honest, like any profession, personal and professional development is that's just part of the job it's part of the responsibility and differentiating between people that are going to wait for the district to, to teach them what they need to know as opposed to going out and getting it that kind of in my mind separates the people that are going to become master teachers from the people that are just kind of coming for the job and leaving yeah. it at that um, not in my mind an excuse you know two right. things in six years okay that's on the district and you know we can we can make all sorts of editorial comments about that but you did it anyway and frankly i think we should all kind of adopt that mindset um just out of curiosity you've gone to this program one of the questions is what sort of access do your kids have are you guys are you one-to-one -one? are there no. devices in the classroom how no. How did you, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I work in a very low-tech classroom. Um, I, it, I have desks and chairs, and I have a computer on my desk, and I have a computer that's on my side table that was donated by Santa Rosa Recycling Center um, for a student-use computer. And then everything else is what walks through the door with my students in terms of our real-time engagement with technology and it's so interesting because I really forget that I don't have any technology when my kids walk through the door it becomes like this buzzing technology hub and not every kid has a device I would say it's I would say three quarters of them like you know two-thirds three quarters have a device it bumped up after the holidays for sure um, but not everybody does and, and I actually if I'm 100% honest prefer it when not every kid has a device in their hands for most of what we do when a kid has a device I get a lot of like this you know and they're kind of like in their own bubble and I do it I walk through life with my phone I'm definitely walked into things with my phone um, but when you have two, three, even four kids working collaboratively on a task using a single device or two devices, all of a sudden the energy is like this. They're, you know, they're asking questions or having conversations and it's like this very natural collaboration which I so have come to appreciate because I actually feel like there's some activities that I designed in the past where when we had fewer phones that actually worked 
better. And so there are some times when I will say, okay, we're going to have a group of three. I just want one device. Put the other one's screen mm -hmm. down in the corner of the desk. Um, and sometimes we'll maximize and, you know, I bring in like every device I, I own and I have a ton of devices. And so I just pass off my devices to students if I really want every kid to have a device in their hands. But, um, and then I'm leveraging their connectivity at home. So they do asynchronous online discussions. They do all kinds of stuff with Google Apps. They use a, an array of web tools. Um, and not every kid has access at home. I, I would say most do now, but I, you know, there's a handful that don't have either consistent access or their internet's been turned off or they've got five siblings. And so getting on the one computer they've got is a hassle. Right. Um, so, you know, in my class Cal or my class website, I have a Google map and I've dropped pins in all the places on our campus, in our community where kids can get online or they can get online and there's devices available. And so even at back to school night, my big mission is not well, gosh, what if they don't have access? You know, I want to figure out how do we get them access because I don't want to not do things because there's three kids who don't have a computer at home. I want to figure out how do we get these kids a computer. I was actually given a, a laptop, donated a laptop, and one of my students has had that laptop at home for two and a half months just using it. So, you know, I just I want to connect kids with technology so they don't leave more disenfranchised than when they came into my class. Um is there wireless at your school? Yes. Are you a Google district? Do kids have a, a GAF account? Um, next I... year they will. Okay. Next year they will. Right. Yeah, we, we've been pushing for it, and apparently this year we had it, but for a menagerie of reasons, they're, uh, they don't have them set up with the kids yet. A little slow to adapt. A little bit. Okay. All right. So um, <laughs> let, let, let's talk about mechanics for a bit. Um, okay. Uh, maybe kind of follow the way you laid out the book. Um, all of this has to do with a student-centered classroom. Yes. All of it has to do, and to me, that's the biggest pedagogical shift from, like you said, the teacher is the possessor of all knowledge to Google knowing more than you and I know and owning that and then putting the, the student at the center of that learning process. So when you made that switch, talk mm -hmm. about that transformation. Was that you knew you needed to do it? Did it kind of evolve? How, how, did, that, how did that take place? You know, I never enjoyed being the, the teacher at the front of the room, in all honesty. And when I remember my favorite courses in college at UCLA, my upper division English classes, it was the ones where we sat in kind of a circle in small seminar groups and we talked about literature and the professor was there and you know she'd pop in questions or she'd you know ask someone to elaborate on something but it was very much our ideas driving those discussions and that learning and that's what I always wanted to achieve but I realized I was kind of stuck in this like in the way of that and so hmm. when I started kind of shifting and incorporating these online pieces and incorporating technology and collaboration with technology in the classroom, I realized it was so much easier for me to remove myself from being in the way of that really student-centered experience. And, uh, you know, and I use lots of strategies to get that done. I flip my classroom so that if I do have things, I, I information I want to give to students, I'm not using the really valuable class time where they can work together and collaborate and ask questions and I can assist as needed to just give them that information. And so learning how to 
pair the the activity or the the learning task with the best learning environment was a really interesting like I stopped thinking of lesson plans within a 90 minute block period because all of a sudden it didn't have to be crammed into this specific time in this specific space. I was able to do a piece here and they could continue over here and we could pull it back into the classroom over here. It was so incredibly freeing. And my students just thrived in this classroom where they were asked to drive the learning, you know, it was, it was, it was right. a little chaotic at first. I'll say that it was, that was a little, that's something I had to kind of deal with it was my own preconceptions or my notions that learning had to be quiet and focused, you know, learning's a little chaotic. And so learning to just be okay in that space, the noise and the movement, that was, that was a big shift for me. But now I see how valuable those interactions are. As, as teachers, I think one of the uh, defining characteristics traditionally for a teacher is you've got to be a little bit at least a control freak and you know, giving up, giving, giving that up and kind of being okay with kids kind of dictating what's going to happen can be a little disruptive for people quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so, so kids wind up in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, you start creating these sorts of things, but why the blended sort of idea? What, where did that come from? Well, it really was about engagement and feeling like I couldn't get the level of engagement I was hoping for in the classroom, and I wasn't able to capitalize on this kind of collective intelligence that was sitting in my room every single day. It is such a deep irony that in lots of classrooms we have 25, 30 plus kids in a room and how often are they actually asked to turn and talk and collaborate and create things together. Um, so for me, blended learning just gave me an opportunity to, like I said, create more space in the classroom because I wasn't trying to jam everything into the the FaceTime that we had together. Um, instead, you know, I could record things and have them watch it, or I could have them, you know, collaboratively read and annotate things on Google Docs and then come back to class and really dive into much more, to a deeper level of conversation or learning than was possible if I was trying to read it and talk about it and apply it in the classroom. It just, it was just too much. And so figuring out how to use technology to connect them beyond the classroom so that they could really continue that learning was so important to being able to create that student-centered environment. So did you learn about this? You went to a workshop, you read a blog post, you just kind of invented it, you came up with it? And um, I mean, there's definitely groups that are doing a lot of research, you know, Michael Horn, his whole group, uh, the Christensen Innovation have been doing a ton of research on blended learning, but I have to be honest that when I read what's out there about blended learning, because I knew that's what I was doing, I was blending online pieces with this face-to-face -face classroom environment, so then I started researching blended learning, but there's not there's hardly, or at that point, there was very few texts about blended learning that were, had any concrete strategies. They were all, right. you know, very pedagogy based, which is great, but like 
for a high school teacher or a middle school teacher who's looking to get this done, it's like, give me resources I can use right now. Give me example lessons that I can model my own work on or that I can steal and use with kids. Um, and so for me, then I started going out and presenting and talking about my strategies. You know, here, oh, here's the do's and don'ts list. Oh, I engage them with online icebreakers so they get to know each other. Here's like my list of how you, you know, strategies for saying something substantial. And teacher was like ripping them out of my hands, like, or, or share that Google Doc with me, you know? And so for me, it was like, okay, clearly there's like a need for this yeah. really kind of concrete approach to a teacher designed blend where you're not a blended learning school, maybe you don't have a ton of technology. It doesn't mean you can't blend really meaningful online learning with face-to-face -face interactions. And I think one of the most powerful things you've done in your book, you, you've, you provide all the theoretical framework and the pedagogical stance and, and all that kind of stuff, but for anybody that's not looked at your book yet, what I like the most is the back part of the book where like almost by grade level and by subject, you've got samples that somebody could just rip out and like do that and use that as a springboard. So that makes it really practical and and usable for a teacher when, you know, my God, I got 32 kids next period. Yeah, and I've got a, yeah. yeah, well, and also that, that piece where you're, you know, it's one thing to design online like discussion questions or online activities, but then it's like, what does that look like coming back into the classroom? Where's the connection? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So um, you, you talk in the book too about some of the whys. Um, you, you talk about it being cheap, mm -hmm. um, save paper. Mm -hmm. You talk about, um, but how do you sell this to a teacher in terms of efficiency and the time? W would it be safe to say, because I'm going to challenge you that you're not saving any time <laughs> by doing this. But you know, you I'm are never going to save any time. Yeah, no. you, but you're changing. Working everything. You're changing what you do with your time, which yes. to me makes it more. I'm, I'm going to call it cost effective. You know, benefit per hour spent. If I'm engaging in a conversation with kids, or I'm kind of monitoring what the kids are doing, to me that's way more powerful for for the minute by minute time that I'm spending doing that as opposed to reading frickin' essays until two in the morning and, and well, then putting a grade absolutely. on it. I absolutely agree with you. And I think what I realized, and you know, I, I say in the book, yeah, save paper. I don't go to the copy center anymore. And people are like, oh, well, okay, whatever. But what it gets down to is this paper trail that traditional teachers deal with that is right. so incredibly draining. And for me, I realized that so much of my energy went into this paper trail that I didn't have the energy to put into, you know, like designing innovative things for them to work on because I was so busy and so frazzled over here trying to get all the copies made and grading everything they were turning in and getting it in the grade book and handing it back. And now in Instead of, you know, just going through and basically writing the same thing on, I mean, 75% of what I write, I write on the every single assignment, right? Um, I Now it's like I can have students posting online and not all the information is filtered through me. All of the sudden they get this immediate and really genuine feedback from their peers. Now yeah. students have to be taught how to do this effectively. It's not like they just go online and you know share rough drafts of thesis statements or introduction paragraphs or analytical, par you know, analytical paragraphs and 
give each other phenomenal feedback. They have to be taught how to do that. But it that's interesting. Like I want them to think critically about each other's work and figure out how to articulate um, constructive feedback for their peers instead of putting my energy in trying to get through all of that paperwork myself. And then what's interesting is there's a level of transparency online where, you know, if we are working in an online discussion or they're working on, we're working on collaborative Google Doc where several kids are adding to it and I make a comment or somebody else makes a comment, we all benefit from that comment. It's not like my comments only go to the person who had the paper. My comments can be used to kind of lift the entire um, the entire level of a conversation or the quality of writing because everybody's seeing it and they can learn from what I've said. I don't have to repeat it a million times. That And that is another thing that I've noticed with, with folks that, you know, if, if I'm writing a piece and I'm giving it to you as a teacher mm -hmm. and then you're just going to give it back to me with a grade, the safest way for me to put out as little effort as possible is <laughs> is to have that relationship. Nobody yep. else sees it, yep. but as soon as I'm posting things and everybody else in my class sees it, oh. or oh, it everybody be good. else in school oh, or yeah. out there where anybody can see it, you know, my parents, my relatives, yep. I mean, all of a sudden I've got a little bit of commitment to put some quality effort into that work that isn't there when it's just me and my teacher. Oh, um, totally, totally. I literally have the perfect example. I'm coming up on this assignment. So the first seven years of my teaching career, and more than that, actually, my kids at the end of the year would do a digital portfolio. Lots of English teachers do this, right? Get a binder. They would take certain pieces. Yep. They'd edit them, make them better. And then they would hand me these, like, enormous binders. You know, full-time teacher, have, like, 158 kids. Then I amassed, like, a room full of binders. <laughs> And, and, just, and you're now committed just, in a week to look at them all because you've got to oh get feedback before the last day of school. Totally. And you know that there was some kid in my past who wrote in the middle of some essay, like, I don't think you're reading this or whatever. And I'd be like, yeah. yes, I am. I'm reading it all. <laughs> and now what's so interesting is they do a digital portfolio. And so they build a website. They take digital pieces. So they're all in Google Docs. So I can see, every, you know, I go to that revision history. I can see exactly what they've edited. They bring them those documents into their websites, they pull in digital pieces, and then I decided, you know, what you said is exactly, you, I wanted to raise the bar, because if they're just building the digital portfolio for me, it's like, eh, wanted to be good enough, like I, I need a B in Tucker's class, so I'm going to do B-level work. Well, right. then I told them, you need to choose three people from your life who are going to see this portfolio. I want a member of your family, I want a friend who is not part of this core, this 910 core, and I want somebody in this core to evaluate your work. And it was like, all of a sudden, their faces were like, oh my God, <laughs> like this has to be good because people are going to see it, like family's going to see it. And they know that I'm going to send out a whole email and text all their parents like, hey, check this out. We're going to need you engaged. And so then all of a sudden, parents are going to be curious. What's happening? What am I going to get to see, you know? So I think there is a lot of, uh, I mean, that's such a great incentive. It's the best incentive we can give kids is that more eyes are going to be on this work. You have the opportunity to share it with a global audience. And, and a serious lifelong lesson because the audience is the planet these days. And even when kids, you know, they go to college or they go into the workplace, um, whatever they're going to do professionally, your audience has a lot to do with making judgments about who you are as a, 
as an effective person. Um, so it, it, I mean, it's important for them to learn that pretty early on. Well, and I tell them, I say, I know you guys are stomping around the internet leaving some kind of prints. Like, I want to make sure a few of those are really good ones. So mm -hmm. <laughs> let's, let's push something out into the world. You know, they do passion blogs and they do their digital portfolios and publish Ted style talks on their YouTube channels. Like, I want people to know, hey, look at what this kid can do. Nice. That's, uh, that's really important. Um, you mentioned that kids don't automatically know how to do this stuff. They don't know how to behave online. They don't know how to ask and provide feedback in an effective way. How do you, first day of school, first week of school, first couple weeks of school, how do you lay this out so that kids are dialed in um, in terms of how to do these things and, and what the expectations are? I try not to overwhelm them. Um, just as teachers get overwhelmed, students get overwhelmed. You know, I'm meeting them at ninth grade where it's like, welcome to high school. And I use a ton of tools and I have a lot of expectations. And so for me, day one, they get out their cell phones. They text my Google voice number what they're passionate about. They, you know, fill out a Google form on their phone. You know, like, I want them to from that first moment, you know, they do Socrative icebreakers, uh, like name that movie line. I want them to know that technology is going to be used in this class for a variety of tasks. Um, and for a lot of them, e even now, it's like, oh, we can use our phone. Like, I didn't even bring my phone today because I didn't think <laughs> I, I thought could I'd use get it. in trouble. Yeah. Exactly. And there's still plenty of, you know, classrooms on my campus that say no cell phones, you know, which I feel like is uh, such a wasted opportunity, but that's a whole nother conversation. Right. Um, and so then, and that first night they set up their Gmail because we haven't been a gas school. Um, and they send me an email with their, you know, random autobiography as an introduction to me. And so it's these little baby steps. And then for those who are totally just like, these are all new routines, I have all of these little video tutorials on my YouTube channel, how to set up a Gmail. And it's literally oh. me like, hey, Tucker here. Like, this is how you set up your Gmail account. Here's how you sign up for a Schoology account. Here's how you participate in your first discussion post. You know, so it's, it's really about like, how can I connect them with a uh, you know, a little tutorial outside the classroom that they can pause and they can do something and they can watch it. And, you know, I mean, that's how I learn lots of things now. And that's how a lot of kids learn. Okay, I want to try something new. My, my daughter, seven-year-old, wants to make a bracelet. She watched a YouTube video, right? So I want oh, them yeah. to form those habits. I play the guitar. Uh, I, I don't buy sheet music anymore. I don't get tabbed. I watch YouTube. There's somebody out there that knows how to play the song I'm trying to learn. Yeah. yeah. That's what we do. We, we yeah. Google it and we watch YouTube. But I still have teachers at trainings who I'll say, oh, I have, a, I have a tutorial I've done, or I can make you a tutorial, like 10 minutes with QuickTime, no big deal, I'll email to you. I don't want to watch a video. Can't you just explain it while I write it all down on my pad of paper? And I'm like, ah, I feel like that's your, you could easily miss something in that pad of paper list. I mean, so often now I don't write things down. I take pictures of things. I record a quick little deal. Like I don't, I so rarely whip out my pen and paper to like take notes on things. Just my my process has changed. Digital natives, digital pioneers, digital immigrants. It's that same that same sort of uh, paradigm shift, I think. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, you know, how many times now you go to a conference and nobody's taking notes? They're they're holding up their cell phone and yeah. taking pictures of the every slide. Every slide, every yeah. slide, totally. Right. Yeah. Well, and 
It's interesting too, because I, even though I'm not a digital native and I didn't grow up with some of this stuff, I find mm -hmm. myself expecting to interact with technology in very specific ways. And so, and, and I watched my kids do it too. I mean, we were on, we were on a flight to Europe last summer and we were in an older airplane and it had a little TV in the back of the headrest. And my son, who was five at the time, leans over and he starts poking at it, like poking and nothing, <laughs> nothing's happening. And it, my husband was like, hey, Maddie, you, you there's like a remote in the chair. And you could just see his face like, what? Why won't it work when I'm poking it? You know, it was hilarious. I, I, I got to tell you, my wife is a first grade teacher and not a technophile by any means. Um, and I got her an iPad. Um, uh -huh. And so then I was doing something and, and I found something interesting. And it was on my, my laptop computer. So I handed it to her and I said, check this out. And the first thing she did is she went to the screen <laughs> and started trying to scroll down. It's like, no. Yeah. So it's not just the kids that are missing out on that stuff. That's hilarious. But um, so the kids start doing this. Mm -hmm. You talk in your book about different kinds of blended learning. Um, you got um, teacher designed, you know, Part of that is sort of pedagogical, but I think there's an important thought process for people as they're starting to think about how they can do this in a class. Mm -hmm. Talk about why you think you, what you call teacher designed is so important. Well, I feel like I, you know, I was looking at the revised definition of blended learning and the different types of blended learning models. Um, and, you know, I just, and they were redone in 2012 actually. And I just thought, gosh, I don't like the message that this is sending, that you have to be in a school that rotates kids through a computer lab or, you know, you have some kind of blended schedule, which there's schools like that. That's great. But for most of us who are traditional teachers, we're not working in those schools. We are working, right. you know, most teachers are like me. They're working in a very traditional classroom, a very low tech classroom. And I want the message to be Anybody can get this done. You know, you have four access to four computers in your classroom. You could get this done. Like, it, it definitely requires creativity and rethinking what a class period looks like and how you, or, you know, how you schedule it. But it can be done. I mean, think about what th what you're asking kids to do. Does it make sense for you to do that in person? Does it make sense for them to self-pace and do it on their own? Does it make sense for them to do it in collaborative small groups sharing a device? I mean, I think we just need to take a step back and evaluate what are the learning objectives of a particular activity and what is the best kind of um, approach for getting that done? Like maybe it's not with the whole class. Maybe it's not with a small group. Maybe it is independent. Maybe you're having students review concepts and they're all at a different place and you wanna tailor that. I just want every teacher to feel like they can embrace this term and decide what does blended learning look like for my first graders, for my fifth graders, or for my high school students. Because um, I think we could all get it done, and I don't want to send the message that you have to be at a blended school or on a on a you know certain kind of schedule to be able to blend your classes. I mean, ultimately, I would hope that in the future we're all blended learning teachers, right? We're all using the technology that makes sense for the learning objectives we're shooting towards, you know, and whether that's in class or online outside of class or a combination of the two, 
you know, I think that's the direction we should all be headed. And to me, that's, that's kind of an important point about just the nature of education today when the textbook and the teacher and maybe an encyclopedia set sitting over in a bookshelf are not the sole sources of information. Um, you know, it used to be that there's 180 days, 64,800 Carnegie minutes. Um, you know, this, this thing about time being this immutable force. And you mentioned you're in a block schedule, so you get 90 minutes. Somebody in a traditional schedule with 45 or 55 minutes, that piece of time is immutable because the kids have to get out of your room and get to the next class. Right. But um, you quoted um, somebody about, you know, always feeling under those circumstances like you're racing against the clock and, about, and you're yeah. trying to get it all in. This has kind of freed you of that? Absolutely. And unfortunately, I think so many teachers are in that quantity. I've got to get through this. We've got to get this done. Instead of really just taking a step back and thinking about, okay, you might have jammed that all in, Catelyn, in the last like hour, but how much of it's going to stick? How much are they really understanding? Do you even know what they're understanding or what they're not understanding? I mean, there were cycles of like checking in with kids that wasn't that weren't even able to happen because things were so quick. It was not like I could post a Google form online and say, hey, what did you get? What didn't you get? What do you need more help with? That would have been a handout that then I would have had to cycle through instead of seeing like an overview, uh, like a pie chart. How many kids are getting this or feel like they're getting this or using exit tickets? I mean, there's just so, I, I didn't know where they were at. I never didn't feel like I had a, my finger on where their, their comprehension even was in terms of certain subjects, let alone their ability to like apply what we had talked about. And I did feel like this constant just anxiety anxiety about, oh, we got to get through it. Like, we don't really have time even for this discussion I wanted to have, even though the discussions weren't great, because we just we just don't have time. You know, it was this very odd sensation. And part of why I've been excited about even the shift to the Common Core is I feel like a dialing back on some of the minutia that I felt like I was responsible for, and a little bit more room to focus on driving deeper thinking and deeper learning, which I'm thankful before. So uh, kids are spending more time now outside of class doing Tucker's homework or the same amount of time and it's different or less time? No, what, not what's, less time. What's the time? Okay. <laughs> not less time. They think that Tucker gives a bit of homework. and But I have always had a little bit of that reputation. And I think the difference is that it's shifted from pen and paper solitary tasks to online collaborative, collaborative social engagement. So instead of reading a chapter and annotating and then writing an analytical paragraph or answering some questions about that chapter and I amass enormous stacks of paper, now they'll read a chapter. They still have to annotate it, which they don't love by the way. And then they go into our online discussion space and they have to kind of chew some meaty theme or talk about, you know, character development. Um, and so all of a sudden, but that, you know, like that is more social. They're reading each other's posts. So I think overall, they're probably spending about the same amount of time. And those ones who are really engaged might be spending more time because they could read lots of different people's responses. Um, you know, I can see how often they log in, but I'm not necessarily tracking how long they're 
staying in our online space. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and, you know, now instead of like, I don't know, reading an article at home. Now they're researching on shared Google documents and creating multimedia presentations on Google Slides and they're just teaching the class about plague in Elizabethan England or, you know, torture and crime and punishment in Elizabethan England. So it's really just shifted the whole dynamic. And I would say I have to imagine that the homework they're doing is a lot more rewarding and interesting because it's not just solitary pen and paper tasks. So now they can collaboratively say that um, Tale of Two Cities sucks instead of just having to I don't make the them read that. <laughs> they don't read oh, that okay. in here. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they don't I'm let sorry. anything you read in my class. I was just, I was just reflecting back. It's really just the worst of times when you're reading yeah, the Tale exactly. of Two Cities. <laughs> um, so, uh, but what's the feedback from the kids? Do they, is it positive? Is it, it, it any yes. less negative. I don't know how to put that. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not like they're all like, yay, homework, it's awesome. But I have a lot of kids who really enjoy my class. Um, I have a lot of kids who come back and just say thank you. Like, thank you for everything from writing to, I had a student who ended up, her father lost her job, his job here and they had to move to Georgia. And she said they were, her, her English teacher wasn't doing anything with uh, technology. And she actually stayed after class to talk about could we use Google Docs? Like I could show the class how to do that. And that she must have had a pretty amazing teacher in Georgia because they said yes. And so she's the reason cool. her entire English class is using Google Docs. And I have kids doing presentations for, you know, different clubs and school board kind of deals and you know they'll say hey Tucker will you know they're in 11th and 12th grade and they're not my student anymore. We check out this Google slide presentation. I want to make sure it looks really professional. So you know, there definitely, there's that feedback of, hey, we're walking away with some life skills that nice. we appreciate, in addition to having read some really great literature and hopefully enjoying some of it. Well, I, I, thank God you're not making them read Tale of Two Cities. I no. just wanna, from <laughs> I'm me so and all of my classmates, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so um, tell me, what what's next? What's the evolution in terms of how you're going to, what are, you, what are you looking at next? You've been doing this a while, kind of flowing into a, um, a new standards-based era. We got the Common Core stuff. You've got another book coming out. I do. Um, but wh where where is this headed? So for me, so the newest book is about how do we make this shift to the Common Core and not just do what we were doing before and put it into these new boxes, but like how do we creatively teach the Common Core with technology? Because there's all these really cool opportunities to just do things differently. Right. Um, and so that's been my focus for the last year and a half is, okay, I know I have these new set of standards. My old book has, you know, standards aligned to things that I mentioned in lessons and activities, but my yeah. understanding of the standards has really evolved and my excitement about figuring out how I use technology to develop some of these skills is kind of has been my focus and as a you know as a learner my interest is really also kind of how do I hone in on mastery and supporting mastery in a very conventional school setting that's a really big interest of mine and I'm also really intrigued by the maker movement getting students building with their hands or 
creating online to learn and what does that look like in an English classroom because you don't hear about the makers movement in English so much and so pushing myself to kind of rethink like okay what could they build what could they create to learn what it is we're focusing on right now like what would that look like um and so those those two for me are areas of really high interest that i'm kind of you know while i'm still have classes and i'm teaching which you know i love teaching i do lots of different jobs and but this is still my favorite job and it informs everything else that i do and so it's like having this little playground where i can try stuff out and see what works and see what utterly fails and 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 speak to teachers from a really authentic place of oh i've tried this and this is what happened and then i did it this way and this is what happened and so it's exciting to be able to work with them and and i have such a i'm really blessed and my kids are they, they learn very quickly that we're going to do lots of stuff and then they're just game. You know, I present these crazy ideas and they just run with it. Nice. Yeah. People want to follow you. You're at Catlin underscore Tucker on Twitter. I am. I, um, am. I just saw your tweet today about performing Shakespeare instead of reading it. Um, and That's I even imagine to connect that to the makers movement because they design the scenes and they take it from, you know, the page to the stage. And that's really exciting. And your blog is where? CatlinTucker.com. CatlinTucker.com. Okay. Yes. Um, definitely, if, if people haven't read your blended learning book, I, I've, I've got to say, like I said, we've recommended it around here to everyone. Um, I, I would put it on the must-read list. And I guess Corwin's got it on the must-read list, right? Now it's you're hitting, so close you're to being on the big time. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, almost. We're this close to being a bestseller, so that's really exciting. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe if all four people who are actually listening to the podcast go out and get the book, <laughs> we can get you right over the top. So I would really appreciate that. <laughs> Catlin, thank you very, very much for spending some time and, and sharing your ideas. Um, My pleasure. All, all the best in the future. And uh, thank you. Hopefully, when your new book comes out, hopefully we can get you on. We'll carry on the conversation a little more. I'd love that. I would love that. Cool. Um, this is Reboot Ed, and uh, we'll be back in a while. I don't know. I got to find Andrew Schwab <laughs> too long um, with another installment. Thanks, everyone. Music.